Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 18th of June with myself, Andrew Svansnar, and my colleagues, Peter White, Simon Thompson, and Harry Morgan. Just like to say to anybody who's listening to this podcast, uh, if you feel that you've got a contribution, you'd like to join in our podcast uh, discussion, email harry at rethinkresearch.biz and we'll see if we can get you on board and um, give us an idea of something you want to talk about. Harry, why do you think Shell's output to to fall 6% with sale of permanent assets? Why is that important? The reason that I I thought it was potentially one of the most important things in the issue is because it's, I think it marks maybe the start of an era for Shell. And I think potentially the start of an era for most of of the European oil majors in actually acting on on their sort of large scale divestments, especially in major markets like the US. So, I mean, the reports this week were that Shell was looking to sell all or at least some of its Caribbean Basin assets. And I mean, the company owns, I think it's around 260,000 acres in the region which produce around 193,000 barrels per day, which, I mean, it's a significant chunk of the Permian Basin, which provides, I think, something like 40% of all of US oil. It's interesting seeing potentially why they've done this, because there's several dynamics at play here. So first, you've obviously got this this Dutch lawsuit that we had several weeks ago from uh, Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace, which has seen, seen Shell actually have to forced into increasing their climate ambition and actually imposing this sort of 45% reduction by 2030, which basically brings forward their climate promises by about five years but at the same time you've got this sort of massive flow of activity in the Permian Basin which is actually seeing prices really increase in terms of people selling their their assets so the usual cost per acre uh, over the past sort of year or so has been between sort of seven thousand and twelve thousand dollars per acre but now that it's sort of around forty thousand dollars it's a great time to sell so you're seeing companies like Shell ExxonMobil, Chevron, all actually trying to sort of offload certain assets while they Yeah, but I mean, it's it's going to be a real problem, isn't it? There's, so there's an article this morning about ExxonMobil's Permian assets producing about half the amount that they've expected them to. Everyone's going to be selling at the same time uh, to, to nobody. That's that's the problem. I, I noticed it when you're, you know, you're saying because of the price of oil, the, the assets value has gone up factor of four. But that's until it actually changes hands. I, I guess these are going to be these are going to be rock bottom sales. That's the sort of conclusion I'd come to as well. I think that this this statement that you can hope to have this sort of 10 billion valuation for a fairly small chunk of the Permian Basin. So we're suddenly going to see loads of people pile in to, and try and divest their assets, which is obviously then going to see of supply um, for yeah. central buyers and prices absolutely fall through the floor and i think it could be fairly terminal what I mean, happens to what happens to america when those permian assets stop producing or produce about half the amount economically that, that they you know that, that they only produce the half that they can afford to economically uh, america stops being able to export oil uh, or, or you know and or gas it's it's constantly gone on about the ambition to fuel China with uh, with natural gas. It, it can't. It's, it's not going to have any. It's going to be a net importer of oil and gas. Yeah, I think that's that's potentially likely. I think it's it's interesting because we're seeing other countries also reducing their oil output, and I think that the US will probably do that slightly more slowly. It's interesting what you think about prices because obviously this production level will fall with the um, assets that are producing less oil, but. It depends at what level you think demand is going to fall. I mean, Shell has stated that I think it's going to fall at around 1% to 2% per year, which probably will be faster than, than production falls at the moment. So, I mean, it's it's really hard to... I mean, I did an article on it a couple of weeks ago, and, and anyone can look at it, look it up. But um, you've got to balance, on the one hand, the fact that 
air transport is not coming back at volume for four or five years. It's, 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 it's just going to be the suspicion that parts of the globe are still contaminated with coronavirus. Parts of the globe aren't worth traveling to uh, economically. And the price of flying is going to go up. So flying is, is, is going to not absorb its fair share of, uh, of fuel. Uh, I think w- with global lockdowns, people are used to being at home and a company. And I was talking to, uh, I think I, I said this the other, the other week, a friend at Gartner, who said, we saved $100 million on travel last year. And now the management are sitting and going, how can we save, can we keep some of those savings, maybe half? So if they don't spend $50 million on travel, again, flights, it's higher cars, it's all sorts of, and and I think people are going to start going into the office one, two days a week, not um, flat out 40 hour weeks. So I think there's, there's, there's all sorts of reasons why fuel never quite comes back. But the rate at which people are buying internal combustion engine vehicles is continuing to be positive. So although electric vehicles are ramping up, if, if all the rest are ICE vehicles, then the number of ICE vehicles on the road continues to rise. Do they travel less miles? I don't, you know, it's, it's a very difficult calculation to make. I, I, whether or not, if we've peaked, we're not going to go much below the peak over the next five or ten years. Mm-hmm. And then it falls off a cliff. And that leads on to the EV sales numbers in Europe and, and this business about PEVs and FEVs. What, what, what's a FEV and what's a PEV, a BEV? <laughs> <laughs> Battery electric vehicle, plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. Okay. There's also something called mild hybrids, which are um, vehicles which store gasoline-produced electric uh, energy um, in a battery and then use it on the uh, other parts of the journey that's just a slightly efficient car uh, it's it's not really um uh, you don't plug it in um yeah it's just it's just the we, we have to keep our eyes on quarter by quarter numbers especially in europe in europe most countries have given an end date for when um ICE vehicles will, uh, new ones are not, will not be allowed to be licensed. What that no one's done yet, and they will in, probably in five or, or, or eight years, is announce when they won't be allowed on the roads, even if there are old internal combustion engine vehicles. At some point, that will happen as well. But as we slowly, Europe's leading the charge in, in legislating against fuel-driven vehicles. And so you've got to keep your eye on Europe, because what happens in Europe, will happen in America, will happen in China when they make similar um, law changes, and they will make them. What we're seeing is uh, the, the something like 24% in Germany of new sales are already electric vehicles. This is from... That's the month of May, though, isn't it? It is just the month of May, but the other month, it, but it's always heading in the same direction. Mm. It, it really goes backwards, even for a month. It's always more vehicles being bought that are electric, each as a percentage of the total. And the things that skew the numbers are that the percentage of the total, if it, for instance, last year, this was the worst part of last year. Nobody was buying any vehicles at all. So no, the numbers, no for, at all. Mm. yeah. So 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 the numbers for for June last year, May and June last year, were very very mm. low. You know, sort of three thousand cars in the UK or something. So it, it's it's difficult to say um, to compare percentages if no transactions were being done. But it largely looks like it, the, the Europe went from two and a half percent in 2019 
to 10% of all new vehicle sales being electric in 2020. And now we're seeing numbers like 17 and 24%. And so it's not, it's not we're not going up 1% a year. Mm. Uh, we're going up in chunks of six or seven. Numbers came out since this. So I think Spain and Italy numbers are also out now. I think Netherlands numbers are out. And they're, they're up in line with Germany. So, so again, you know, we're something like 24% of sales being EVs. The forecasts that we've done are the most aggressive of anywhere on the planet. And this might this suggests that they are too low. That's all. You know, that the transition's happening even faster. Could mention the Spain piece briefly. Yeah, yeah, we can, and we do it every week. That that because we've chosen to do fifty countries in a year, um, one a week. We've got we've got to have a discussion about that country. There was not much newsworthy in it. It was it was a nicely written piece. Um, yeah, give us give us your impressions of it. You know, like you say, it's not exactly newsworthy. I mean. Um, like a lot of European countries, its renewables went stagnant in about 2011 after the 2008 recession when the government decided they didn't have money for them anymore. And also like a lot of countries, it's revived since about 2017, 2018, and the installations have, have returned from 2019 and 2020. So it's now a respectably large market for its population size in terms of wind and solar. Something that is missing that is a bit more interesting to talk about is rooftop solar. I think partly it's because a lot of the people live in flats, so it's more complicated to figure out who owns it, who gets the money from it. And there's also less roof space per person and, and the rules on the on the regulator side just aren't there in, in place. So I think I think so far this year they've installed 140 megawatts of rooftop uh, domestically for, for domestic. And, and that's quite pathetic compared to. I mean, it depends what you want. I mean, you can't find a government who wants people to have rooftop solar because the government listens to its advisors and its advisors are utilities. And the utilities say, we don't really want to sell less energy because we're in the business of selling energy. And so if we have to buy energy from our customers, it really isn't what we want. So, Mr. Minister, you really don't need to do this. We, we can, we'd much rather the solar was sold to us and we sold it to the public. And, and so we, we shift towards auctions, which are, I think, universally thought to be a cheaper way of governments to fund more electricity. And so I, I think it's very difficult to get a, a, a government to say feeding tariffs are a good thing. There's a few more things you can mention. They, they totally like destroyed their coal plants. So, I mean, there's only five gigawatts left. There were 10 gigawatts a few years back and most of the five gigawatts going to go. So How very, did they do that? What, what was the magic ingredient? I think the EU was regulations and the carbon tax and stuff like that. OK, I but, mean, but uh, if a right wing government had been in power, I guess they would have um, found a way to salvage them. But. I don't know that right wing equals more fossil fuels. You know, I don't think that's the universal thing as we've seen in Mexico and Brazil and other places. You know, sometimes it's a left wing government that supports fossil fuels. Sometimes it's a right wing government. I don't. I don't. Let's not get politics. Let's not get too political. Your next article, hmm. right? You you raised the, the an idea that build back better world, a European or the G7 summit promises forty trillion dollars mobilized from the private sector 
So I basically invested because it wants to in developing countries. It's going to be spent on green energy um, to, to rival the Belt and Road Initiative. I just thought that was a staggering amount of money. And did anyone explain how this is going to come about? No, I mean, it's it's a recent uh, grandiose announcement at, a, at the World Summit. I don't think there have, have been more details yet. I can't really talk about it that much considering it hasn't happened yet. But I would figure that it would be comparable to the Belt and Road Initiative. I, I would expect that it is intended to be a counterbalance to the Belt and Road Initiative, um, including the sort of the influence side of things, the political side. And this happened, um, maybe it's a bit off topic, but I mentioned it anyway. This happened at this summit with Russia involved. And in my opinion, I think they the, the US could have stopped Nord Stream 2 and probably didn't because they didn't want to piss off Russia even more and force it into a closer alliance with China. But that's not really about energy anymore, if we start talking about that. You could say some things about the Belt and Road. It's actually declined a bit in recent years. They've settled into a quieter pattern of um, last year, because of the pandemic, it was only 47 billion only. And uh, of that, 20 billion was energy, 11 billion of that was renewables. So that, in practice, is not gigantic. Um, well, it's a but, dramatic change because it, it was it was about eighty percent of it used to be fossil fuels. So that, that, that it's heading in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. I think we don't really care about the political influence it gives China. If China supports renewable energy in all of those markets, and if they can come up with creative ways of financing projects which don't bankrupt the countries and 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 uh, continuing the mistakes that America made in the sixties and seventies, then Potentially, you know, we don't care who who gets behind renewable energy. We just care that somebody does get behind it. I guess we should just be pleased that they it's the avenue for, for influence competitions. Yeah, but I mean, really, the, the, the question is, what kind of financial deal is being offered to these countries? And it always involves the dollar. I mean, China will not be lending money asked to be paid back in Rwanda. That there will be payback in dollars and America and Europe lend money to these countries to buy their own products. And it always involves the dollar. Pegging your future to the value of the dollar when your currency is likely to fall and the dollar is likely to rise is like going to a, um, a money, unlicensed money lender who can change his interest rate at any point in time. So you have to come up with creative um, ways of, of, of structuring finance so that it suits Western banks and at the same time isn't going to bankrupt the country. And it's not easy because we've seen so many examples of countries being bankrupted simply because they borrowed money from superpowers. Moving along, I, I got a bit upset with the UK Climate Change Committee. The UK Climate Change Committee is is a, a noble institution that's, a, that's a, uh, an all-party um, quango to give them advice, give any government in power advice on climate change. And it has got some very smart and very experienced people on it. But I just, the, the, the coverage in all the national newspapers of their rebuke to the UK government was so tame and lame. I just thought we just remind people that the big problem with climate change is drought. And the big problem with drought is that people die in their billions when drought comes to large continental masses. That's what's going to happen. And, and if you end up with that, you end up with mass migration 
border friction and war. All we've got is, oh, there's a bit of, you know, the countryside won't be so nice and uh, the soil health, you know, we won't be able to produce quite so much food in the UK. We should plant more trees, you know. I mean, it, it just was couched in terms that were merely inconveniencing uh, the government. And no one really slammed uh, the government for being blind and useless on the subject of renewable energy. So I just, you know, if anyone wants to read that, it's, uh, it is a rant from me, one based on, on what I think is um, reasonable. But it, uh, it does change public opinion and, and you know, eventually people that, that, making, that are making decisions come from the general public. So they think it's about protecting the bee and the hedgehog. Uh, you know, it's it's much. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. And it would be nice to keep the bee and the hedgehog. Yeah. Yeah. But most importantly, let's keep the planet. But OK, <laughs> but it influences opinion. I'm yeah, right. it does influence opinion. And, and, and it is important that they criticise the government. But you can't say, you, can you imagine somewhere like Iceland, you know, we're criticising the government for not being renewable enough when they get all their energy out of, out of volcanic ground. You know, and that there's nothing the government can do. It's it's the, the one thing the UK can do is we're responsible for the industrial revolution. It's yeah. our fault. We can go and help the rest of the world and we can lead by example and help the rest of the world. We're doing neither of those things. Yeah. So the only two things we can do to fix our contribution, we're not doing it. Uh, Boris Johnson's a bumbling buffoon when it comes to uh, to uh, just understanding climate change. There's been a lot of uh, a lot of stick this, this week in the media about him turning up to the G7 uh, summit on a plane, which I think yeah, sum, I, sums I noticed him up well. that yeah, from London, like a, a, a sort of 150 mile an hour, 150 mile journey. Uh, I'm much more worried that people like Rolls Royce have come out with a strategy based on alternative fuels t- this morning. You know, we're going to decarbonise all of our flights 100 percent by using alternative fuels which basically put carbon into the atmosphere huh. uh, it just it, it just bothers me are we going to grow fuel well it doesn't matter where the fuel comes from it puts carbon into the atmosphere and it it's um it's all backward thinking i mean we've had that debate on um on growing fuel with whenever we mentioned drex who are as far as we're concerned the um uh leaders of the dark powers of mordor <laughs> Andres, the bankability of solar called into question by degradation. Yeah, the um, it's this report from KWH Analytics, and they do a a yearly report on on various financial stuff relating to solar. So without going into all of that, they they the newsworthy part of this year's report from them is that they've They've basically revised not exactly the science of the of what the expected degradation is, but the the perception of, of those findings. Because an NREL study in 2016 said, oh, the median degradation for modules is 0.5, 0.5% per year, which means you lose what 12.5% performance by the end of. Doesn't it flatten off? Doesn't it sort of you lose a bit, and you lose a bit, and then you stop losing a bit after 12 or 13 years? Well, uh, what mathematically, because it's 0.5% or? I don't know. No, just no, not, I would not, imagine not. that it just keeps on degrading okay. at quite a steady pace, just because uh, 
I haven't really looked at that specifically. Well, it is well maintained. And if you are monitoring the uh, energy output, you should be mm. fixing whatever's broken and making making sure it comes back to um, previous levels after a while. Well, you can fix things like inverters, but I'm not sure that you can fix a solar module in the field. You can replace it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so so anyway, that's a cost. Anyway, to get anyway, the um there was a big flaw with this 0.5 median degradation per year, which is that that was just the module figure, and you have inverters, you have some other things too, like trackers, which might start going a little bit out of kilter, and when you include those, and when you go to an average instead of a median, that might be it as well. You get a little bit more than double the figure, so 1.1 percent per annum. And what this means, like like I said in the article, is um, if you double the degradation, that means you're losing about six percent of the total generation you expected uh, in, through a, through a 25 year lifetime. So that is very important if you're financing. So if you've models. modelled it on 0.5 percent degradation and it and it actually gives you one, you're uh, you're you're in a bad place if you're an investor. Yeah, and this this firm KWH Analytics, it, it, it actually. I guess that's kilowatt hour analytics, but um, they they do have a lot of um, data coming in from their their clients, I guess, that, and and the data agrees with this new new these new figures. It'd be uh, interesting to know what you do as a financial. You know, have you offset some of the um, of the risk? Um, have you insured effectively insured the risk by um, hedging it? You know, if this happens, is there a penalty? So that you get more of the payment rather than the um, the manufacturer or the owner. Um, I imagine contracts do are, are structured so that the mm. banks are the ones who don't lose any money. Mm. A shame we don't get to see those contracts because uh, it would be nice to understand those in a bit more detail. I was looking up some other research on this topic online, not by these guys, and uh, I think the impression I got from some other recent papers is that it's actually even higher. It's more like 1.3%, sometimes 2% in a very humid or hot area. I mean, it's difficult because the weather isn't the same year to year, and that minute by minute throughout the course of a day, um, the heat makes it underperform depending on on exactly how it's designed, and you get uh, a better, a smaller day, uh, twenty uh, sort of ten hour reduction in the cycle from um, things that are not silicon. So you know, that, that is the reason that first solar gets to um, um, push its products as less degradation over time but less degradation during a day as well so there's i mean imagine it's very difficult to monitor that because you've got to monitor it 24 7 all the time we should probably talk about speaking of first solar another advantageous thing for them is this uh, polysilicon price i don't know if you want to talk about it at great length but well, you notice i jumped over it yeah well i, I should mention <laughs> one thing from that then which is that um for a long time, there's been like, oh, a 40,000 ton polysilicon plant has been announced, a 100,000 ton polysilicon plant has been announced. And someone in China totted up all these figures and it comes to uh, 1.8 million tons of new capacity has been announced for the next, what, five years or so. And that's right. enough to make another 600 gigawatts of solar per year. <laughs> Just thought I should mention that. <laughs> so they're really doubling down on polysilicon. Talk is cheap. Announcements are cheap. When, when the factory starts producing... And it's fully funded and it's and it's fully staffed. But, uh, I mean, who knows? You know, maybe it'll be be that much or more. But you, you, you know, as we say, talk is is cheap, and and it it's good to get into these day to day 
numbers around silicon. I think you should look into into that. You should look into whether or not these factories, I mean, perhaps you should maintain a list of these factories when they're announced. I mean, mainly to do it on the batteries, because there's something like 150 battery factories been announced. Well, when you go back a year later, you find nobody's unannounced them, but they've gone away. And so you never get to the bottom of, of why they didn't materialise. Uh, and normally it's uh, that they don't, they're not past that funding commitment. But the last thing I really wanted to talk about was Harry's on um, on-site spiral welding. Because of all the places I expected to see a drop in the LCOE of, um, of uh, wind farms, I hadn't thought that it would come from spiral welding. So, and, and that article made a good case that it will. Yeah, I think it's really easy when you're talking about um, any sort of renewable technologies to get. I think you, you always think LCOE reductions are going to come from ma- some massive innovation. And I think people often overlook the sort of manufacturing techniques, um, which, to be honest, can be quite dry. Um, I, I'll admit that having read through hundreds of papers of them, really. But um, what we saw this week was a is a new approach to on-site spiral welding from a company called Keystone Tower Systems. Um, Essentially, what this means is you, you've essentially got like a helical um, spiral going up in, in basically the shape of a tower. Um, but the benefit of it is, is that the steel can actually be delivered to the site of construction and then actually joined, rolled, fitted, welded, actually on site and constructed there. Um, the big news this week was that the Department of Energy in the US has said that there'll be a, a 160 metre demonstrator, uh, which is massive. That's a, that's a really large tower. Um, and the the whole sort of uh, advantage of this approach is that uh, having on having things sort of flat packed on site actually removes any transportation limits which we've, yeah. we've talked about for blades in the past i mean you've got bridges and roads that just mean you can't transport things of a certain size when with wind turbine towers at the moment they're generally sort of modular so you have one sort of cylinder and you put another one on top and another one on top of that so roads roads generally limit their maximum diameter to around 4.3 meters uh, what Keystone is saying is that this spiral welding will allow them to go up to sort of eight metres uh, in diameter, which will mean that the height of the tower can go from sort of an average of 80 metres up to around 160. Obviously, at this sort of greater height, you've got wind speeds that are sort of 50 percent greater. And actually, that could boost the capacity factor by between sort of five and nine percent, which then obviously has a really, really good impact. On in what kind of time frame? In what kind of time frame is that likely to become commonplace? Keystone is saying 2023 is when they're expecting this to be commercial and they're saying on sort of uh, wind farms of over sort of 15 turbines. But the other great thing about it is as well. But as why it, is it, does it need to be more than one, uh, more than a handful of turbines? Probably from an economical perspective. So actually um, making it worth actually renting a system that you can then uh, deploy at a certain place, right. which can be done in sort of a month, in a month notice, but you've got it install that at the place before you can actually construct the towers and that in itself has got some expense to it and so does, it, does, do you yeah. see this making um uh, onshore just taking the price of that down and you can't you, there is no similar price similar price drop cost drop for uh, offshore so they're saying you can do it for offshore wind as well but i think obviously the, the primary benefit is onshore it will see a massive cost reduction onshore and i think an advantage that's not really been talked about is that this will really open up access to more remote locations, which 
generally is where it'll be more appropriate to have onshore wind anyway you'll get far less nimbyism and you'll be able to build that much more capacity so i think but you've still got you've still got the problem with the transmission normally to the nearest um, uh, metropolitan center which is normally one of the headaches yeah exactly it doesn't it doesn't get around that and obviously that's a problem but what about repowering or what about replacing so if you've got some transmission you've got um some wind farms and they're pretty small you could you can go in and perhaps um beef up the height of of uh, a whole field of them and um and extract double the amount of energy yeah definitely and i think uh, there was a a paper from nrel a few months ago that that talked about this idea and said that sort of around 80 to 90 percent of current wind farms in the US would benefit from this approach of having a much larger tower and it would be a sort of an economical advantage to actually do that right right so this is this should have wind people hopping and uh, re- redoing all their sums and seeing if it works for them definitely I think it's um it's one of those sort of innovations that could become very commonplace and I think it's, it's similar to the the wooden turbine tower approach we've seen from Modvian, that it's these ideas that really do start to gain quite a lot of traction in their early development because they are such a good idea. Does it really change where wind turbines can be built or is that still mostly a, a transmission line thing? I think it's, all it, the height, Andres, you know, hmm. if, if you've got four metres per second wind at a certain height in, in, in a kind of mountain range, well, if you can stick them up higher, suddenly you've got seven or eight uh, metres a second. So it's actually the opposite effect. You can get a better deal while building them closer to home instead of having to go into the mountains. And we know you go into, if you've got them, Harry, you take it. <laughs> yeah, I think overall it just makes wind more economical. That you've got, um, if you're accessing greater wind speeds, you're especially at locations where you've got maybe moderate wind speeds and at sort of low altitude, uh, it will mean that your your turbines are just spinning at rate of capacity much more because they're at a speed at a height where wind speeds are just typically like a little bit higher. So it just makes it it more economical. It, it it while it does open up new locations, it's more in the sense that it just reduces the cost of deploying wind farms anywhere in terms of per megawatt hour so i think that's the that's the key benefit here really and i think if you are if you've already built some in the mountains you, you know it, you 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 can't get very much up a mountain on on the given roads if you can take it flat packed and and build it higher um that that would change the your design point for um for ones that you've already built 